So, as I said, we're going to kick off a, a new teaching series, and we're going to explore some of the theological foundations that we as a church have been building on. Now, my hunch is that most in the room will know this, but some perhaps won't, that we're actually an Anglican church. Um, it might not be obvious because we don't meet in an Anglican building. We rent a school in the morning. We rent the Ethiopian church in the afternoon and evening. You may not realize this, but I'm actually ordained as a priest in the Anglican church. I don't dress like that. Um, but perhaps even more surprising than me being a priest is that Pete James is actually a priest. Um, you wouldn't have guessed that particularly from the way that he behaves sometimes at Camino at the pub after the Sunday evening services. A couple of times I've dragged him out and said, Pete, you just can't behave like that. That's just not priestly behavior. Um, if you're new, I'm joking, by the way. Um, perhaps even more surprising than that is that Anna's ordained in the Church of England. More surprising still is that John Carter's about to be ordained in the Church of England in a couple of months' time. They're actually ordaining anyone these days. So if, if you are interested, do come and chat to me at the end. Um, but we, we tend not to use the label that much. <clears throat> and beyond the label of Anglican, we don't actually use many other labels because labels are often used to, to divide and say, this is who we are and, and we're this and you're that. And, and there's division. So we don't really use labels. Um, if anything as a church, um, we want to learn from the best of each of the traditions. We want to celebrate that God is at work in every denomination and in each of the traditions. And we want to learn from all of God's worldwide church. So when it comes to our emphasis on discipleship, on spiritual formation, of developing spiritual disciplines that enable us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do the stuff that Jesus did, we're really learning from the best of the Catholic tradition about imitating Christ. When it comes to a lot of our compassion ministries, where we're wanting to get to know and embed ourselves in the community, not just running short-term projects, but building friendships, having an incarnational mindset, being faithfully present, not just over months, but over decades of wedding ourselves to the well-being of King's Cross and the community. Again, we're learning from the best of the Catholic tradition of being faithfully present on the ground in a location. When it comes to, to scripture, to our, our teaching, um, we want to celebrate the evangelical tradition that we're a part of. That when it comes to our understanding of scripture, we believe that scripture is our ultimate authority. That it trumps tradition, that it trumps reason, that it trumps experience. That when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to behavior, when it comes to practice, when it comes to ethics, and we submit ourselves to scripture. So we're celebrating the best of the evangelical tradition. When it comes to worship and ministry and prayer, we're wanting to learn from the Pentecostal tradition. I have a deep, deep love and respect for the Pentecostal tradition. We, we want to catch some of the faith, the hunger, the expectancy, the passion as they pray and as they worship. And equally, we want to celebrate the best of the um, charismatic tradition that we find ourselves in. Now, I'm fully aware that, that some in the room will hear that and think, are you allowed to do that? Like, you know, where I grew up, you weren't allowed to do that. You were either one camp or, or not. Are you allowed to blur the boundaries? And I'm not sure, but we're trying to do it. We're going for it. Others in the room will be like, the last three minutes, I had no idea what he just said. It just that all went overhead, but if you're not allowed to do it, count me in. Count me in. Others, others in the room will be thinking, oh, how amazing. I've longed to be part of a church that has this vision of generous orthodoxy, learning from the best of each tradition and having this posture of humility. Now, we are imperfect, but this is our attempt to take the posture of humility, the posture of students wanting to learn and wanting to grow. And we want to learn from all of these traditions. 
So essentially, this teaching series that we're entitling Come Holy Spirit is, is our attempt to sort of do some digging into our charismatic tradition um, that we would begin to sort of not just um, understand the person, the work of the Spirit, um, but that we would begin to sort of move in the power of the Spirit and understand more about the gifts of the Spirit. So this is the journey that we're on. Week one today, the person, the Spirit. Next week, we'll look at the work of the Spirit. Week three, we'll look about how do we host the presence of the Spirit. Week four, we'll look at the gifts of the Spirit, and particularly prophecy. Week five, we're going to look at the gifts of healing. And week six will be Pentecost, exploring the power of the Spirit. This is the purpose of the next six weeks, um, to grow in understanding. In other words, to be intellectually stimulated, that our understanding would grow of the person and work of the Spirit. Um, but number two I want to emphasize is, is number one wouldn't be enough, right? We want to grow an experience of the person and work of the Spirit. I, I just meet so many Christians who settle for a biblical understanding of the Spirit and settle for less than a biblical spirituality, and particularly of the New Testament, um, as it talks about walking in step with the Spirit, sort of like being prompted by the Spirit, working in partnership with the Spirit. So we want to grow an understanding. Our, our hope is that minds will expand, but more than that, in our hearts, we will encounter the Spirit. We will deepen our friendship with the Spirit. And to make this point, I want to look at one verse, Luke 1, verse 34. Um, and I, I want to look at the bottom translation first, and which is closer to the Greek. Um, this is really sort of exploring how we talk about knowledge. Because sort of post the Enlightenment, where reason was elevated above all other faculties, you know, Descartes said, cogito ergo um, Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. In other words, it's all about being rational beings. Post the Enlightenment, when we talk about knowledge, we tend to talk about understanding. Um, and and it tends to be fairly cerebral. But pre the Enlightenment, in other words, at the time of the Scriptures, they had a completely different understanding of knowledge. Yes, it was about sort of mental understanding. But more than that, it was experiential. It was relational. So look at the bottom translation. Of Luke 1 verse 34, it says, Then Mary said to the angel, this is the story of, of the incarnation. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, if you look at the modern translations, how can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? In other words, the, the original translation is like, I don't know a man. This isn't about intellectual understanding understanding. Mary knew blokes, you know, she had an understanding of the difference between male and female, but she didn't have this intimate experience of a man. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, otherwise this is going to go off on a tangent about the birds and the bees. You, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that in the context that the scriptures were, were being written, knowledge wasn't just cerebral understanding, rational thought. It was experiential. It was relational. In other words, when we talk about the spirit, we want to understand the work and person of the spirit intellectually. The spirit wants to be intellectually known, but wants to be intimately known, Right? And that's the question we should be asking of our, our, ourselves is how much do I understand the person and work of the Spirit, but how is the friendship? How much intimacy is there in the, the friendship? So when we look at the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as we, as we talk about the Trinity inside the church, but let's go beyond the church. I think a lot of people in the culture are, are pretty okay talking about God. 
The language of father for some is difficult because of human experiences of, of an earthly father. But when we talk about God, the, the creator, the source of life, God that's sovereign over all, people are happy talking about God. They might not believe in God, but they're happy that other people believe in God and they're comfortable with the language. When we talk about Jesus, I think people in the culture are really happy talking about Jesus. There might be debates about his full divinity. There might be debates like, did he actually rise from the dead? But people tend to like a lot of his teaching. They like his ethics. They like his example, the signs and wonders. They're pretty cool. So there's a kind of an appreciation of Jesus. So the understanding of God, the creator of all, yeah, we're kind of cool with that. At least we're happy for you to believe it. We like the person of Jesus. Might not believe that he's divine. Might not believe that he rose from the the dead. But we kind of like him. He's cool and groovy, all that stuff. But God the Spirit, that's just super weird. And we're not comfortable with that. We just don't even understand that. That's outside the church, right? But I would say inside the church, people tend to be fairly comfortable with God. The language of Father, difficult for some. People tend to be really comfortable with the person of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. But when we talk about the Spirit, people get anxious. Um, And there's a lack of understanding, intellectual understanding. And often there's a lack of intimacy. Because what's unknown can frighten people. Um, And the purpose of this series is to grow in intellectual understanding, but to grow in intimacy. Are you excited by that? Okay, so let me just explain then. So if, if you're having trouble with this kind of paradigm shift of understanding the personal work of the Spirit, you're in good company. Because if you read the Scriptures, the Gospels, moving into the New Testament, you'll realise that the first followers of Jesus, there was a massive paradigm shift they went on as they encountered the personal work of the Spirit. Like a massive mind shift. So let's explore it. I'm going to take you on the journey. Um, this is the Old Testament then. Now, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, every day, three times a day, in other words, they'd wake up and say this, um, in the middle of the day they'd say it, at the end of the day they'd say it, this is one of their most famous prayers for the Jewish people, even to this day, called the Shema, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. So every day, three times a day, from birth, or from the moment you can actually speak, from the moment you can pray, you're saying this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, focus should be on the Lord is one. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So every day, three times a day, here are Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Drilled in every day. And it's what set you apart from the surrounding nations that were all polytheistic. In other words, they had many gods. The Romans had a pantheon of God. The Greeks had a pantheon of gods. The Egyptians had many gods. The Canaanites, many gods. All of the surrounding nations had like many, many gods. And then right in the middle of them, with the Jewish community that had one God. And more than that, this one God had covenanted himself to this people, this nation of Israel. And this oneness of God was reflected in all parts of their faith. There was one temple. There was one land. There was one people. There was one Torah. There was one priesthood, all reflecting the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... There we go. You're beginning to get it, right? Um, So monotheists, they believe in one God. Now, imagine then that you're one of the first disciples of Jesus. You're hanging out with Jesus. You're saying this prayer three times a day. You've been steeped in it. You celebrate all these other cultures are polytheistic, but we believe there's one God and he's wedded himself to our well-being. We're in covenant with him. And then you realize that Jesus is beginning to act and behave a lot like God. And that starts messing with your mind because we believe in one God. And yet this Jesus 
who's making some massive claims and he's doing things that only God can do. So for the Jewish people, only God can forgive sins, right? Only God can forgive sins. So if you want forgiveness, you'd go to the temple, you'd visit the high priest, the high priest would make an offering and then God would forgive that sin and you would be free. Uh, But Jesus, outside of the temple, like on the streets, sort of in Galilee and the surrounding areas, would, would announce forgiveness of sins. Now that's going to start messing with the minds of people, right? Only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is now announcing the forgiveness of sins. He's acting like God. And more than that, he's healing the sick and he's, he's raising the dead and he's saying some really strange things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like if you know me, then, then you know the Father. And it's like, how do we even understand that? And then more than that, particularly in John's gospel, you've got these huge statements where Jesus takes the name of God, the Hebrew name Yahweh, literally means I am, and he takes that name, he uses it of himself to articulate the character and nature of God. So he says, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am Yahweh, the God that you've been worshipping and praying to. I am that God in human flesh providing for your needs. I am the good shepherd. So you've been waiting for Yahweh to come as a good shepherd to strengthen the weak, to bind up the injured and to lead us to green pastures and still waters like I am Yahweh in human flesh. I am the good shepherd that you've been waiting for. I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. Um, I am the gate for the sheep. All of these statements, seven of them, the perfect number, the number of divinity, seven of them to basically say this God that you've been worshipping, that you've, you've prayed to, that you're in covenant relationship with, I am God incarnate, God in human flesh amongst you, Right? Now, just imagine the paradigm shift. You've been saying the Shema three times a day. The Lord is one, but you're like, okay, we worship one God. But, but now we're realizing that in our experience, we, we've experienced God as Father. But now we're experiencing God in human flesh, in the person of Jesus. God the Father, God the Son. And they begin to make these huge statements trying to sort of like draw you into the massive paradigm shift they were going through. So John's gospel, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God. What? Like, how do they wrestle with that kind of paradigm shift? And is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. Christ has made God known to us. God, Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh. Paul builds on this. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Like We know what God's like because we've seen Jesus. Paul, one chapter later, says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So this one God we've been worshipping has been made known to us in the person of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, not partial, exact representation of his being. So these first disciples are going on this journey of we've encountered God as father. We've experienced the person of Jesus. So one God God Father, God the Son, and then Jesus begins to teach them about the coming of the Spirit. And this, again, the paradigm shift was significant. This is going to blow their minds. So this is John chapter 14. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. We said that earlier, right? That people in the culture around, they're kind of okay with the idea of God. They kind of like Jesus. Um, But the spirit, like, what? Um, But you know him, Jesus says, for he lives with you and will be in you. 
I will not leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. All of this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, some translations say comforter or counsellor, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Let me unpack one phrase. Um, here it is, alos parakletos, another advocate. Let's say it together in Greek. Alos parakletos. One more time because it sounds beautiful. Alos parakletos. Brilliant. Lovely. Um, audience participation and all that. So two words, alos. Alos means another, parakletos translated advocate or counsellor. Let me explain alos then. So in, in the Greek language, there are two words for another. There's alos and there's hetros. Um, I'm going to explain this with, with some sweets. Um, anyone like Cadbury's cream eggs? Right at the back. Okay, this, Colin and Becky both put their hands in the air. So this is, this is coming your way. Oh, catches win matches. Round of applause. Um, and can we ask now that Colin gives that to Becky? You actually reached across and stole it from your wife. So there we go. And a round of applause for Becky. There's, there's an illustration of marriage there. Um, I don't know what it is. Okay. So one suite has gone in the direction of um, Colin, but ended up with Becky. Um, who would like another suite? There we go. Front row, Connie. This is yours. Um, so this is, this is a fudge, okay? Another chocolate. Everyone in agreement? This is another chocolate. There we go. Um, now, in the Greek, another, that would be heteros. It's another chocolate, but it's a different kind of chocolate to the one that went to the back, which was a Cabri um, cream thing. Crammer. Yeah, there we go. Um, so that was a heteros sweet. Who wants another? This would be alos. It's another of the same kind. Who would like another sweet? There we go, right in the corner. Again, round of applause, catches, win matches. Um, so, in, in this language, Jesus says, I will give you, alos parakletos, another counsellor. In other words, another of the same kind. So one of the top um, scholars of John's gospel, Raymond Brown, a Catholic theologian, writes this. I think this is super helpful for our, standing, our understanding of the person work of the Spirit. Since the paraclete can come only when Jesus departs, in other words, the context of John 14 is Jesus saying, I'm going to be with the Father. Um, since the paraclete can come only when Jesus departs, the paraclete, we'll come to that word in a minute, is the presence of Jesus when Jesus is bodily absent. In other words, it's only when Jesus ascends to the Father that the Spirit is poured out. So the Spirit is the presence of Jesus when Jesus is physically absent, right? So we're waiting for the bodily return of Christ. At that point, heaven and earth will become one. All things will be redeemed. But we have the presence of Jesus, the paraclete, um, right here amongst us now, which is the most beautiful, beautiful thing. So Alos, another of the same kind, just like Jesus. So let's unpack the word paraclete, because I think this is beautiful, or parakletos in this form. Um, the word means the one who draws alongside. The one who draws alongside. The best way to understand this is to look at modern use of the language. If you go to the Mediterranean um, and you hire a boat, maybe some of you will do that this summer, and you head out from the harbour, and because you have no idea what you're doing, you're a Londoner, and you're trying to blend in, and you're already burnt, and, and you get too far away, and you're in distress, and you're freaking out, and you have to call for help. And um, what will happen in that moment is they will send a smaller boat towards you. That smaller boat will come out, find you, they will attach themselves to your boat, um, and then they will bring you back into harbour. They will draw you alongside and bring you back into harbour. That, that boat today in the Mediterranean is called the paraclete. 
Okay, so when Jesus, and I'm, Jesus says, I'm sending you Alos Parakletos, another paraclete. He's basically saying, I, I was a paraclete. I drew alongside you. You were lost, um, and I drew alongside you to bring you back to the Father. I'm sending you Alos Parakletos. I'm sending you another counselor, advocate, comforter to draw alongside you and to bring you home. Not just home to yourself, but home to the Father. Now, this is absolutely beautiful. Bit of a side point. When we have ministry times here at KXC and we invite people to come to the front to open themselves to the Spirit, it's not uncommon for there to be tears. It's not uncommon for there to be shrieks, maybe, or people like physically encountering God. Let's just look at the human experience of counselling. When you go and see a counsellor, I'm sure many in the room have. I have. Um, And there's often a moment where the counsellor is digging around, asking questions, trying to create a space where your heart can find its voice. And often there'll be one moment, one question, um, and suddenly they tap on something and you fall apart. And whether that be tears or like sobs, or shouts, or screams, or none of that, but just inwardly something's happening. That is our experience of of human counselling. What the counsellor's trying to do is create a safe environment of healing where you can find yourself. You often go to counselling because you've lost yourself, like you've experienced pain or trauma or something, and you want to find yourself. That's a human experience of counselling, right? Well, the way that divine counselling works is the spirit comes, not to lead us back to ourself, but to lead us back to the Father where we discover our true selves. So it makes complete sense that in the presence of the Spirit, the the counsellor, the comforter, there's moments where our heart finds its voice and there might be sobs, there might be shouts, there might be all sorts of manifestations. We don't need to worry about that. They're encountering the presence of Jesus through the Spirit and they're experiencing healing. Like, how beautiful is that? Wouldn't you want more of that? Now, just to be really honest then, in terms of my own journey, um, I've said this before, many will know, that I'm about to head on to sabbatical. I think we've got six or seven weeks um, before we take three months out of ministry. Um, We will not be at KXC for three months, and we will miss you sorely. Um, But do you know what my deep prayer is right now? It's like, Spirit, come and find me. I, I am... Like after 10 years of ministry, I'm so tired. Um, I feel like we've poured ourselves out. Paul uses that language, doesn't he? I've poured myself out like a drink offering. Not that I'm like Paul. Um, But like we've poured ourselves out and I feel really tired and honestly pretty fragile. Um, A little bit like lost at sea. And every day right now, my prayer is like, spirit, come and find me. Like bring me back to the harbour. Bring me back to the, the father. Because I know that I'm going to find myself as I find you. I can pretty much guarantee for the first chunk of sabbatical, my prayer every day will be, Spirit, come and find me. Because I'm really struggling right now. I'm so fatigued emotionally, physically, spiritually. I say that because I know there's people in the room, that's where you're at. Like the deepest prayer of your heart right now is, Spirit, come and find me. Like as a boat drawing alongside me in distress, attach yourself to me, lead me back to the harbour where I'm safe. Spirit, come and find me. That's what the Spirit does. Alos Parakletos. It's so beautiful. It's not enough to intellectually understand this, right? We can experience the presence of Jesus by the Spirit, drawing alongside us and bringing us to life. Don't you hunger for that? We should hunger for more of that. 
So I've mentioned that they go on this journey, these massive paradigm shifts. One God, monotheists, right? Everyone else, polytheists. They're monotheists. One God. But suddenly it's like, okay, we've experienced God as Father. We've experienced God incarnate in the person of Jesus. God the Son. And at Pentecost, the Spirit's poured out. It's like, okay, we've experienced God the Holy Spirit. And this journey is a journey from essentially an Old Testament understanding that God is for us. The emphasis in the Old Testament is is God is transcendent. He's beyond our understanding. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But he's covenanted himself to us. God is for us. And that's mind-blowing. They celebrated this relationship that they were in, but then God incarnate, God with them, God Emmanuel, suddenly it's more than just God is for us. They realize in the person of Jesus that God is with us, like amongst us. He's lived for us, he's died for us, he's, he's risen again to offer us resurrection life, eternal life, but then more than that they realize with the outpouring of the Spirit that God is in us. Like this is God moving closer and closer and closer to you. Like God is for us. That would be great, right? God is with us. Unbelievable. But God in us, the hope of glory, Christ in us by the Spirit, the hope of glory. That's unbelievable good news. Now you can intellectually understand this. Plenty of people that have brilliant doctrine, they understand all of this. But the Spirit wants to be more than intellectually known. It wants to be intimately known. The Spirit filling us, that is the language of intimacy, right? That we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the grave is coursing through our veins right now. That's what it says in Romans 8. I mean, that would be a slight paraphrase. Um, The Spirit is in us, God moving closer and closer and closer. So wherever you are at in your faith journey, some aren't even sure what you believe about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Others have been following Jesus for years. And um, whatever you've experienced, you know there's more. That God is constantly moving closer towards you. Theologians call this progressive revelation. You understand and experience more and more and more because there's always more to, to grab hold of. So let me illustrate this with some text then. So this is Isaiah 40. This is the Old Testament understanding. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been able to give him advice? It's kind of like banter. I mean, we don't find it very funny. Um, But it's like, who who understands the mind of God? As if we could give God advice. That's funny. Again, contextually. Um, And then listen to Paul building on that. He actually quotes that verse in Romans 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Quoting it. He's just celebrating that that God is so much bigger than our imaginations. But notice what he says as he begins to build on this. In, In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Quoting Isaiah 40. And then responds with a massive but. Massive but. But we have the mind of Christ. Like who has known the mind of the Lord? And then the answer is like, we. We do. Now, because of Christ, because of the Spirit. Like we know the mind of the Lord. It's been revealed to us by the Spirit. This is like mind-boggling stuff. Here's another example then, Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, um, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. So essentially an Old Testament understanding of, of God. And then listen to what Paul says as he takes that idea and builds in it. 1 Corinthians 2. However, as it is written, 
What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things um, God has prepared for those who love him. Like this stuff's beyond our imaginations, right? And the Jewish crowd being like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our... Yeah, you're absolutely right, Paul. And then he says, but these things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So no longer can you just say, oh, it's beyond knowing. It's beyond understanding. Paul says, no, 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 no. Something's happened. Through Christ, through the outpouring of the Spirit, these things have been revealed to us. The character, the nature of God, the purposes of God. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So they've gone from this kind of like transcendent understanding. God is for us. God is with us. God is in us, revealing to us the mind of God himself, the purposes of God himself. And it gets to the point that they begin to express this with Trinitarian language. So here we have it, Matthew 28, found on the lips of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Complete equality in the Godhead. Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, in other words, God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A common prayer. Um, displaying equality in the Godhead. So you end the kind of New Testament and by the time you get to around the fourth century with the closing of the canon and you have all the creeds and all of that stuff, people land on this Trinitarian understanding of God through their experience, right? That God is three persons, each person is fully God, there is one God. Now if you're confused, welcome to Trinitarian theology. Like it, it, it is confusing at one level. It's a mystery that we will never fully understand. But essentially, we're being invited right, right into the very nature of God, this Trinitarian relationship in the Godhead. Now, as we focus that on how we understand the person and work of the Spirit, we would say the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit is a distinct member of the Trinity. Let me race through these things. Firstly, the Holy Spirit is a person. This is so important we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. I would say one of the evils of our time is trafficking, human slavery, that we would take a human life and depersonalize it and objectify it, you know, use it as a commodity to bring about economic grain. Yeah, right? I think we'd all agree that is an evil of our time. Um, we celebrate the human rights movement, acknowledging that each person is of infinite value and should be treated with respect and dignity, right? I find it fascinating, by the way, a bit of a side point, um, that the foundation of the human rights movement is a Judeo-Christian worldview of what it means to be human, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. You know, the Judeo-Christian worldview is the tree. The fruit of the tree is, is the human rights movement. We live at a time where people want the fruit, hungry for the fruit. They just want to get rid of the tree. Like they want the kingdom, the fruit, they don't want anything to do with the king. They'd rather just get rid of the Judeo-Christian worldview, but they want all the fruit. They don't realize that the fruit comes from the tree, right? But the point is, we'd agree that it, it would be evil to take a human life, to depersonalize that life, to objectify that life, to use it as a commodity for personal gain, right? That's evil. And yet, I think in chunks of the church our understanding and at least our practices lean towards depersonalizing the spirit, objectifying the spirit, wanting to use the spirit as a force to bring about our gain. Now, this would be a sign, and the sign is in our practices, maybe not in our doctrine or understanding, but in our practices, that we don't really spend any time enjoying friendship with the spirit, building relationship, 
hanging out in his presence, learning to walk and keep in step with the spirit. But when we're in a crisis, it's like we need you to do X. And even our language sometimes in prayer is we command this and we, we declare that and you must work in this way and you must provide. And we begin to order the spirit as if the spirit was a force that we can use either for kingdom gain, but on our darker days for our own gain, right? And yet all along, and this is so strong in the New Testament, the Spirit's a person that you host, that you hang out with. So here's an example, Acts chapter 8. This is someone um, that got it completely wrong. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, all the people, not just some of them, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Now, that isn't a bad nickname, right? I was Pedro at school, Husey. I mean, to be known as the great power of God. He must have enjoyed that, right? Like he, that's a great nickname. Um, that was his nickname. They followed him because he'd amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself, this guy with the nickname, the great power of God, believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So his own sorcery, whatever he was doing, is like, whoa, that, that's greater. Like, I'm turning from this. I, I want to be part of this kingdom movement. Um, but when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, bit like a bull in a china shop, Peter. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And I cut out the next few verses because they're really intense. Um, but can you see what Peter's going after here? It's like, no, 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 no. We, we, we're not going to tolerate an understanding of the spirit where he's depersonalized. That you can buy the spirit. That you can try and get hold of this force and use it for your gain. No, 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 no. We're stamping out right away. The spirit is a person that you host that you partner with, that you submit to. The Spirit is the very presence of Jesus when Jesus is physically absent. Now, throughout the, uh, the New Testament, then, the, the Spirit, um, all the verbs that are used of the Spirit demand a personal agent, so the Spirit searches things. In other words, the Spirit isn't a force. It's not like Star Wars, you know, may the force be with you, you know, and all of that stuff. No, the Spirit is a person. Forces don't search things. They, they can't know things. They can't teach. All of these verbs demand a personal agent. Um, so firstly, the Holy Spirit is a person. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is God. We'll just rush through these. The Spirit possesses these divine qualities, being omniscient, knowing everything, knowing the mind of God himself, omnipotent, all-powerful, um, omnipresent, Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. The spirit is everywhere. Um, the works of God are attributed to the spirit. So he's active in creation, imparting the scriptures. He's the agent of the new birth. He's the agent of the resurrection. Um, we've looked at Trinitarian expressions. But then here in Acts 5, you've got the name of God given to the Holy Spirit indirectly. So this is the story of Ananias, um, where Ananias lies to the apostles and Peter gets involved again, like steps right in. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. Who, who's he lied to, the Holy Spirit or God? And like this is just revealing the understanding in, in Peter, like the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. When you lie to the Spirit, you lie to God. So the Holy Spirit isn't like partially God. The Holy Spirit is God. And finally, the Holy Spirit is a distinct member of the Trinity. So one God, Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, part of the one Godhead. Um, the best way to understand it is to think of the Trinity, the Godhead, like a family. In being, in essence, totally the same. Um, but distinct roles. So this is a general rule that within the, the family of the Trinity, the, the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit appropriates. So look at creation. It's the Father that initiates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think of redemption. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. So initiated by the Father, accomplished by the Son. In him, all things were made. This is Jesus. In him, all things were made. In him, we have the forgiveness of our sins. In him, we have redemption. So the Son is the agent of creation, the agent of recreation, the agent of redemption. And it's the Spirit that appropriates the work of the Son, makes the work of Jesus real to us, available to us, makes Christ known in the world. The Spirit transforms us into the likeness of Jesus. So one God, three persons with these different roles... Um, and I'll land with this final question then. How much do you want to know? Because that's what this teaching series is going to be about. Not how much do you want to understand and make sure your doctrine is, is solid. You know, how much do you personally want to know him? To understand his nature and his ways. To develop this kind of intimacy with the Spirit. Here's, here's the closing story then. There's this um, couple that went as missionaries into a, a remote rural area. And they were given this house to sort of base themselves in. And as they settled into the house, they noticed that there was a dove that had made its home into the, the roof of the house. And this dove was absolutely beautiful. And every day they'd go out onto the veranda, they'd have breakfast and they'd look up at the dove and be like, oh, this dove is so beautiful, like majestic. I'd love to listen to it sing. And every morning, let's go out and just listen and let, let's watch the dove. And then they noticed that every so often they'd have an argument. They'd slam doors and effing blind at one another and shout. Um, and the dove would fly away. And it would be weeks, maybe months, before the dove would return. And when it returned, they got really excited. The dove's back. It's, it's back in the, in the roof. And they'd go out each morning. Oh, so beautiful. I love living, you know, with this dove and being in the company of this dove and listening to it sing. And then... A few weeks later, massive argument, slam doors, F and blind, and the dove would fly off. And this happened again and again. And essentially, they, they had this conversation to say, look, we, we've realized that we've got a choice if we really want the dove to stay, that we need to adjust to the dove because the dove isn't going to adjust to us. Like if we keep this kind of like way of arguing and screaming and shouting, the, the dove's going to keep disappearing. If we want the dove to make its home here, we're going to have to find a way of being, a way of doing life together, doing marriage. Um, what, do we, what do we think? And they both said, we want to do life with the dove. Like It's the most beautiful part of this house. It's why we love being here. Let's find another way of operating as a couple. Um, it's a simple story, but, uh, but I love it. How much do you want to do life with the Spirit? How much do you want to host his presence? Not just you know, snatch after his power, but keep in step with the Spirit. How much do you want to experience the spirit, alos parakletos, drawing alongside you where you feel lost and hurting and leading you back to harbour, back to the Father where you discover your true self? Like that's what is available as we host the presence of the spirit. It is unbelievable. You could settle for intellectual understanding, right? Or you could build on intellectual understanding and grow in intimacy. And my encouragement is, is go full after both. Why don't you stand with me?